The scripture reading this morning is found in Luke, 19th chapter, 28th verse through the 40th. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks, cloaks on it, on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And that's the word of the Lord. Please join us now for hymn number 130, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. Sure you noticed the bookmark in your bulletins this morning? Lent begins this Wednesday, and so for those who would like to use this period as a time of reflection and meditation upon our Lord, we provide this for you uh, as a guide, in, in case you might want that. This Sunday morning, we, it is the Sunday before Lent begins, and so we'd like to preach and look at Jesus Christ and really what he's come to do for us. And so we've chosen this passage and seeing what the world does cry out about Jesus to begin our time of meditation upon him. And I trust that through this period, each one of us will draw ever closer to our, to our Lord, to our Savior, to our Messiah. Let's pray. Our Lord, open our hearts to all that you have for us. Open our hearts to draw us in to the praise of your glory. Open our eyes to see you, to see Christ more fully. Open our mouths so that we might praise you and speak of your glories to others. Teach us, Lord, through your word today. In Christ we pray. Amen. The passage that was read is so rich and so full 
that we really only have the time to address one verse this morning. So I want to look at the acclamation of the crowds as Jesus made his way to Jerusalem. They cried out with loud voices, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, each of the four gospel writers report about the triumphal entry of Jesus, and they all speak of the proclamation that the crowd made. But only Luke includes the last sentence, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And and there's a reason for that, because Luke is trying to get a point across. He wants to nail it into our consciousness. Where have you seen that phrase before, something like it? Where has Jesus been declared the coming Messiah and had attached to that peace and glory? That's a, I'm actually asking. Does anyone recall somewhere else that Luke taught? Somebody proclaims, the king is here. Yes. Okay, the angels at the birth of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 2, it says, Suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Luke has included these words because he's really putting bookends to the ministry of Jesus Christ. At the very beginning, the angels cry it out. At the very end, the people cry it out. We now hear earth proclaiming what heaven has always known. And earth needs to proclaim it. Because if the people don't, the very stones will cry this out. So, Enter into the feelings of the people that day when they believe their king has come to bring peace and to glorify their Lord. So what I want to do this morning is just look at those three components of Christ's coming. The kingdom the king brings, the peace in heaven, and the glory in in the highest. They proclaim that Jesus is king. Their proclamation isn't simply that he is a king, but he is the king. He's the king of kings. He is the Messiah. This is a messianic proclamation that is drawn from Psalm 118. That is also talks about the people crying out, save us now, which is what Hosanna means, what the other three gospel writers include. The people had been waiting for centuries upon centuries for this Messiah to come. They had read the prophecies about the coming kingdom, that their enemies would be conquered, Peace would rule. The armies would beat their swords into plowshares. The wolf would lie down with the lamb. They were waiting for the time of Israel's redemption, 
of Israel's transformation where the law would enter into the hearts of the people to transform them. And the Spirit of God himself would be given to live within each person's life. Where lives would be inordinately long. And ultimately, where the ravages of sin, the curses of sin would be reversed. All we need to do is look around our world today and we see this world is not what it should be. And if God created it, it clearly cannot be what God intended it to be. It is broken and we are broken. And while some still think man is basically good, look around. We see wars and rumors of war. We see hatred. We see bitterness. We see riots. We see human trafficking and slavery. We need to only look into our own hearts and we see selfishness, jealousy, anger, unforgiveness. This world is broken, and we know it. Eva Hoffman, a Jewish intellectual, in her book, Lost in Translation, put it this way. Ever since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, there isn't anyone who doesn't in some way feel like an exile. We all feel rejected from our first homes and landscapes, from our first romance, from our authentic self, an idealized sense of belonging and tuning with others and ourselves completely eludes us. We know we should be more. Relationships should be more. This world should be more. The kingdom of God comes to reverse that curse. Isaac Watts captured it in the song, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And the verse says, No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the crown. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found, as far as the curse is found, as far as the curse is found, as far, as far, as far as the curse is found. The kingdom comes to reverse that curse. So we can imagine the excitement of the people If you know very shortly this world would be made new, what would you be feeling? The crowd had seen the miracles of Jesus. They knew the power of Jesus. They knew what he could do. They saw him reversing blindness and lameness, casting out demons, giving hope and truth. They were excited. But in a few days, they would be gravely disappointed. Because this king would be taken and crucified. This dream that they had became a nightmare. This king who was to be crowned, his coronation turned into a funeral. All their hopes were dashed. But they should have known better. Jesus had warned them. He he had taught them shortly before this event. 
he had told his disciples. Taking the twelve, he said, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon. After flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Shortly before this event, Jesus said, I'm going to be killed. I'm not coming riding into Jerusalem and establishing the kingdom. I'm riding into Jerusalem in order to be sacrificed. What the people didn't get was that the death of Jesus was not the death of the hope of the kingdom. The death of Jesus was the seed to the kingdom. For it's only when Jesus took the curse that belongs in all of us that the curse could be lifted. The kingdom was not going to automatically appear in a few days. Jesus had taught them in a parable the very passage that precedes the triumphal entry is the parable of the Minas. And in that parable, Jesus says, there's a nobleman, and he's going away for a long time. And so he gives various amounts of money to his servants so that they could do his business and increase his business while he's gone. Jesus is teaching the kingdom isn't appearing immediately. There's going to be a long period of time before the kingdom comes. It's going to come when I return. Now, this can be confusing to us because there are times Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is among us. He teaches parables that the kingdom of God is like the tiniest seed that's going to grow into this tremendous tree where, where the birds live and thrive. And so in some ways, it's like Jesus says, I brought the kingdom with me. And yet he's saying, I'm leaving and I'm going to bring the kingdom with me. And, and to put those two thoughts together, we have the phrase you've heard before is, the kingdom is here now, but not yet. There's an aspect to the kingdom of God that is here right now, spiritual aspects. But the full realization of that physical kingdom, the fruition of the entire curse being reversed is going to occur when Jesus returns. But Jesus has left us a spiritual kingdom. He's left us minas to serve him and to spread that kingdom among others. That kingdom is in the spiritual dimension. Just as Jesus reversed the curse to, to reach out to the poor and the needy, we or to reach out to the poor and needy and alleviate suffering. Just as Jesus touched and healed the blind and the lame, we are to reach out and comfort those and serve those who have the physical ailments. Just as Jesus uh, conquered Satan, so we too have within us the Spirit of God who is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus Christ came to left us, leave us peace. 
that we can have in life today. So Jesus has brought us the kingdom of God. In the spiritual dimension now, but in the fullness when he returns. Jesus also brings us peace, as the proclamation says, peace in heaven. Now, what is this peace that he's talking about? A peace in heaven? Well, I believe it's the same peace that the angel spoke about. As, as we can see, glory in the highest is in both the refrain the angels give at Jesus' birth and it's in the refrain of the crowd and the triumphal entry. So it's very natural to infer that the peace the angels spoke about is the same peace that the people are crying out. Though the angels said, peace on earth among men with whom God is well pleased. He is not talking about a physical peace where wars will cease on earth. He is talking about a spiritual peace that resides only among people who are believers in Jesus Christ. And so when they cry out, peace in heaven, they're not saying, oh, we hope the angels stop fighting in heaven. They're saying is there is a heavenly peace that Jesus Christ gives to those whose minds and hearts are in heaven, who are connected to God himself. Jesus spoke about this in the upper room to his disciples. He said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So what did Jesus say? He said, I have a peace for you that's very different than the world's peace. The world's peace is, let's have all problems and difficulties go away. Say, no, that's not the peace that I bring you. You will have the same trials, tribulations, and travails that everybody else has. You will suffer the same losses, the same pains. The peace you have is the spiritual dimension of peace and rest that you can have in the hands of God. This is captured in a little piece uh, I want to read to you of a contest about painters painting the picture of perfect peace. I read, Long ago, a man sought the perfect picture of peace. Not finding one that satisfied, he'd announced the contents to produce this masterpiece. The challenge stirred the imagination of artists everywhere, and paintings arrived from far and wide. Finally, the day, day, great day of revelation arrived. The judges uncovered one peaceful scene after another, while the viewers clapped and cheered. The tensions grew as the crowd awaited the unveiling of the last two, the second and first place winners. The judge pulled the cover from the second-place winner. A mirror-smooth lake reflected lacy green branches under the soft blush of the evening sky. Along the grassy shore, a flock of sheep grazed undisturbed. Surely this was the winner. It offered an incredible feeling of peace. Everyone wondered why this painting had not won. 
What could possibly be better? The last painting was uncovered by the painter himself. A tumultuous waterfall cascaded down a rocky precipice. The crowd could almost feel its cold, penetrating spray. Stormy gray clouds threatened to explode with lightning, wind, and rain. In the midst of the thundering noises and bitter chill, a spindly tree clung to the rocks at the edge of the falls. One of its branches stretched beneath the falls in an enclave sheltered by the rocks. A little bird had built a nest in the elbow of that branch. Content and undisturbed in her stormy surroundings, she rested on her eggs. With her eyes closed and her wings ready to cover her little ones, she manifested peace that transcends all earthly turmoil. That's the peace that Jesus Christ offers believers who trust in him. No matter what is going on in our lives, we can rest in him. That's what Jesus did. Jesus faced everything we face and even much more. Consider when he enters into Gethsemane. And he's there contemplating his physical and spiritual death. He's very restless, anxious, anguished. He's in agony as he sweats drops of blood. He begs his father that this not have to take place. But he prays to his father. And when he gets up from that prayer, he embraces his destiny. He has a peace that will endure tortures, scourgings, humiliation, and crucifixion. His peace is so great that while nailed to a cross, he looks down on the crowd of people who have cried out for his death, and he says, Father, forgive them. He is at such peace at the end that he looks up into the heavens and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This peace doesn't mean we won't ever be anxious. But it means we'll take that anxiety to God himself. We'll take it to the foot of the cross and there see how great the love of God is for us. And if the sovereign God who holds all things in his hands loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us, will he not freely give us everything that makes for peace? Rest in his care, his sovereignty, and his wisdom. He does know best. He knows what we need in our lives more than what, what we need, we think we need. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you. He offers his kingdom 
the reverse of the curse in our lives in the spiritual dimension. He offers us a peace here and now. The question is, do we take hold of that which is in the heavens for us? Do we set our minds on the heavenly things to experience that peace? Or do we let the troubles of life still control us and move our emotions? Do we look at difficulties as stepping stones to becoming more like Jesus Christ? Problems to apply the wisdom of Christ? Disappointments as things we could still endure. Sins that are met by the grace of Jesus Christ. There's peace in Christ. And the last, the last is the greatest of them all. It's the glory of God. Blessed is he, who, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. You see, Jesus Christ's life brings the greatest glory to God. Creation cries out the glory of God. It speaks of his power, his majesty, how awesome he is. As we look at the universe, God created all of this. It speaks of the transcendence of God so much bigger than us. But the life of Jesus brings that God to us. The life of Jesus cries out his humility. Though he is God, he steps aside off the throne, putting aside his glory and taking on humanity. That would be enough humility. But then to allow himself to be beaten and humiliated, that's enough. But then to be crucified, that's enough. But to be crucified for the sin of the people who rejected him, that's unfathomable love and self-sacrifice. In the cross, we see justice of God and the holiness of God. It shows us he can't just laugh away sin. He can't laugh away injustice. It has to be met, and it was met by the payment of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, the cross and Christ glorify God in the greatest way. What does that mean for us? Well, the greatest treasure, the first uh, come now is the time to worship, said it. The greatest treasure in our lives is to be able to glorify God. Why? Why is that the greatest treasure? Most people say that's, that's a burden. It's, you're making it all about God instead of yourself. Yeah, that's the point. Worship and glorifying God is the greatest treasure because, first of all, we align ourselves with what is right and true. We give God the glory that's due him. But also, it's the way in life that we thrive. It's the sea in which we are meant to swim. Uh, did anybody here go to the Patriots parade? Anybody get down there? Is anybody a Patriots fan? Yes, okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> what did you feel when they won? And they overcame the greatest 
deficit ever. Sports Illustrated said miracle, right? And so that only intensified the, the, the glory that they received. And so the city held a parade. What? They held a parade to glorify the patriots. And you know who went? Hundreds of thousands. Some reports said a million. Some said a million and a half people went down on that stormy, cold day to stand on the streets to get a glimpse of the patriots and to cry out their praises. In fact, there was not one person there who said, you narcissistic athletes, you think you're the greatest, you're nothing. They praised them. They rejoiced in them. And they will always remember being at that parade and they will boast about it to others. I was at the parade. The Patriots are the greatest. Tom Brady's the greatest. Bill Belichick's the greatest. And it, it joy welled up in their lives as they glorified a sports team. Why, why so much? Not one of them signed a contract with the Patriots. Not one of them put on a uniform and set out, but not, not one of them played it down for the Patriots, but they were caught up in it because they're our team. Our hearts are connected to them, and when they win, we glorify them, and it's a joy to do that. Our God is an awesome God. He's our God, and we are connected to him. And he has entered into this world with such incredible love that it lifts our hearts and our spirits. And he overcame more than the patriots. He overcame death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to actually benefit us so that we know we too will be raised anew when we die. You see, praising and glorifying when we're truly united, brings joy. We thrive when we glorify God. Gives him the glory to his name. It attaches us to him in depth of love, and it opens us to his leadership and his guidance through his commands, which tell us how to live life as it was meant to be lived. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, our purpose in life is to, chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When we glorify God, we make him the center of our lives. Who, should, who do you want to be the center of your life? Is it, uh, is it the athletes you really want to be the center of your life? Is it celebrities, politicians, friends? Usually it's ourselves. We want ourselves to be the center of our lives. We know best. But today especially, we should realize 
it doesn't work. We don't thrive when we are the center. Gene Twinge studied various generations for over 20 years. Studied the boomers, the busters, Generation X, the millennials, the current young generation. And she she zeroed in on, on the millennials. And she looked at how they were raised and what they feel about themselves and what they're experiencing in life. Because this is the generation that has been raised and nurtured on the words, put yourself first. So what's the outcome when people put themselves first? Well, the title of her book about this generation uh, gives it. It's entitled Generation Me, Why Today's Young Americans Are More Confident, Assertive, Entitled, and More Miserable Than Ever. She's got a new book about what the i-generation, the iPhone generation, and she's seeing this just continue to grow. Yes, there are people here, they're more tuned to helping others than previous generations, but that's often compartmentalized way of helping us feel better about ourselves. It's not something that transcends their lives. Now, I'm not trying to, we're not really speaking about a generation here. There are plenty of millennials put God first, put others first. There are plenty of boomers and busters and ex-gen who put themselves first. The point is when we say we're the most important thing, we make it about ourselves. It is not the pathway to thriving. It's worshiping God, glorifying God, putting him in the center of life is the way to joy. Jesus said to his disciples that he was the vine and we were the branches and that we bear fruit to glorify him when we stay attached to him. And he said this, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So what happens when we live our lives to glorify God? We even glorify him by bearing much fruit. What kind of fruit do we bear in our lives? Well, we think of the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, joy. Love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. You know what? If I have those qualities, I'm thriving. See, so when Westminster Confession says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, we see these are two sides to the same coin. When we glorify God, we will have joy. We will have the fruit of the Spirit, what we really want in life personally. And when we, when we walk with God and experience the fruit of the Spirit, it says to the world, this God you serve is wonderful. Because look what he gives in your life. And he's so... You, 
We glorify God by bearing the fruit of thriving in life and so proving to be his disciples. How do we prove to be his disciples? By experiencing all God wants us to experience in the fruit of the Spirit, which comes through glorifying God. Jesus Christ came to bring us this, the kingdom, and we can have that hope and rest that one day he's going to make all things new. What we're experiencing now is not, it's temporary, it's not permanent. We can live with that hope. We can endure because of that hope, but he still gives us the spiritual kingdom right now. The spirit of God himself, purpose, hope, and he gives us peace, not the peace of the world, the peace of resting in God. And he gives us the greatest gift, the glory of Jesus Christ that we can be caught up with and make him the center of our lives. Lent begins on Wednesday. Many people are going to give things up because they're remembering that the Lent is based on the fact that Jesus went out into the wilderness, fasted and prayed for 40 days. The idea, though, is that not so much what we give up, but what we get in Jesus Christ. Jesus went out there and he gave up things so he could spend his time with God the Father. Let us use this Lenten period to spend time with our Lord, with our Savior. Let us meditate on the fact that blessed is he, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Our Father, your word is so great, so tremendous. We thank you that uh, it's truth itself, that we can build our lives on it. Lord, may your spirit be continually drawing us to the truths that the crowd proclaimed. Sometimes they didn't seem to really, really get it. The disciples didn't get any for a long time. I pray, Lord, that which we don't get, we will get more and more because we will get you. Amen.